Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. I'm Adam Levine. Katie's on assignment. Joe, you and Katie usually ask the questions, but this week we figured we'd take you back to your White House press secretary days and ask you some questions. Our topic today is the Trump family's excellent adventure 2019 taxpayer-funded world tour. It started Memorial Day weekend in Japan. There was a brief stop back home to threaten Mexico, then off to Europe to offend the British over to Ireland to make a few bucks, and then on to France to use one of the U.S. military's most hallowed burial grounds as a prop and a backdrop for a Fox News interview. But let's start with Japan. There was confusion over a North Korean missile test, a happy Memorial Day wish to Japanese troops, and finally, a bizarre attempt to hide a United States Navy destroyer from the commander-in-chief. Joe, what happened in Japan? And why does it matter? Well, let's put it in some context first. For presidents, these foreign trips fall into two categories. The obligatory ones where you have to go and sit with 15 or 20 other leaders and some of them have to dress in funny clothing and take pictures. Those are a little bit of a bore. But then you have these trips where you get to command the world stage and be the, the, the diplomat in chief, the world statesman. And for President Trump, the last 10 days really set up that way, where in between Japan and his stops in Europe, he had a chance in many ways to show a president different than the petty little man that we see domestically most of the time. It won't become as as a surprise from your lead-in that he failed miserably. And I think overall, my reaction was one of deep embarrassment. If you travel around the world, there's always the so-called ugly American. Two people in the corner who are talking too loudly, saying things that are rude, and you just you just cringe and you think, God, I, w- I hope people in whatever country you're in don't think we're all like that. Well, Donald Trump is the ugly American, and he traveled around the world and proved that he's both incompetent and unable to perform the duties, the, the very basic duties of being president. So let's let's get into some specifics here. He went to Japan, and it's it, the Japan trip started by one of the more unusual things you know we've ever seen in, in, in presidents and politics, which is a staff member to the president decided that the USS John McCain had to be covered up because it might upset the president. John McCain, by the way, a war hero, POW for I think six or seven years, very distinguished service in the United States Senate. And, and by the way, that ship is named after his grandfather and his father. His name was only added to it later, but he's this is a yes. storied ship in, in the United States Navy. Yes, and, and, and you know, his son is serving in the military right now, in the Navy. So, you know, a, a young person, whoever it was, decided to, to do that. That's really only half the story. The, the Navy rightly told them to get lost. They, they did not do that. Although, I, the story goes... Sailors from the USS John McCain were denied access because the White House staff did not want the president to see anyone with a McCain hat on. What came next is what really is bizarre. You had 
President Trump say that, yes, he had heard it had happened, but it was good intentioned. Then Mick Mulvaney, the chief of staff, went on Meet the Press and said, there's nothing wrong with that. The staffer knew that it would upset the president, and that's, that's, what, you know, that's what this is about. It's a small story, but it's emblematic of the pettiness of this White House that starts with the president and goes all the way through his staff, that they would dishonor an American war hero, an American family, you know, one of the most storied American naval families in the country, in order to not bother the president. You know, it's stunning when you look at it. And then, of course, once once the news coverage got bad, President Trump denied it had happened. You know, you always have to get the denial in. Right. And then he wished the Japanese troops that he visited a happy Memorial Day. Yeah, that's, you know, that's that, that goes into the head-scratcher department. You know, Memorial Day is a day that we celebrate in this country, all the people who've given their lives for our freedom. And we have many gave their lives around the world. And to turn to another country who was, you know, was a mortal enemy of the United States and wish them a happy Memorial Day suggests to me one thing, which is the president has no idea what Memorial Day is. He has no idea what's behind it. And it has nothing to do with him. So he has no interest in learning more about it. And so, Joe, the final thing on the Japan leg of the tour was the North Korean missile test and how one part of our government talked about it and how the president of the United States talked about it. Yeah, well, the responsible part of our U.S. government was very concerned about it. This was the North Korea testing a short-range ballistic missile, uh, a missile that could hit Japan but could not hit the U.S. Which they, which they often do when the president is in is, yeah. is an event to, to take attention, draw attention to themselves. Yeah, and John Bolton and the national security team expressed some serious concern about it. The Prime Minister Abe expressed serious concern. Trump came out and said he wasn't concerned at all about it, that he trusted Chairman Kim and that it was all going to be all right. You don't have to be a political genius to know that you create a problem when you're speaking to tens of millions of Japanese. You're in their country as their guest, and you say, hey, because this missile can't hit me, I'm not concerned about it. There's diplomacy, and there's this new Trump diplomacy that is almost designed to insult any host that is entertaining him. He went to highlight the the importance of the bilateral relationship with Japan. And the message on the front page of every Japanese newspaper was, I don't give a shit about you Japanese people. If, as long as we're okay, everybody's okay. And it didn't go over well in country. He returned home for a few days, Joe, and he attacked the Mexican government by oddly threatening what can only be called the largest tax increase on Americans in the last 25 years. Now, you and I have been in politics long enough when we remember when Republicans were against tax increases. And I think the last Republican president to actually raise taxes was a guy named George Herbert Walker Bush. And he got a primary challenge and lost in a general election to a guy named Bill Clinton. What is the political fallout, if any, of the tariff threat and the Republicans in Congress who clearly are against this but seem to be too afraid to actually do anything about it? It's become a familiar pattern for the president. He and his co-president, Stephen Miller, believe that anytime there's bad news, that the way to counter bad news is to create a problem and highlight the issue of the border. And that this falls into it. This was a particularly egregious example because his entire economic team is against him on this. I can't believe none of them have resigned, but the only person who seems to be for it are Stephen Miller and Peter Navarro, who are the, the hard line immigration people 
within the administration. And I, I imagine Lou Dobbs, who's an ambassador at large um, yeah. from, from Fox. But it is. You're, you're right. I can just imagine them sitting there doing their talking points saying, nobody said, read my lips, no new tariffs. Um, it's, right. It is a huge tax increase on Americans, particularly if you're buying food items or a car, because the entire supply chain of much of American manufacturing depends on the free flow of goods between Mexico and the United States. It's, that's just a reality. It's not, it's not a political statement. It's also counterproductive. We see these spikes of undocumented immigration when a couple of conditions occur, when there's political unrest and violence or, or an economic downturn in Central America, and when there's, put a, when there's economic prosperity here in the United States, when people think, I can escape to something better, I'm going to take the chance to go to the United States. What this will do if it is enacted I said counterproductive because it it will send the Mexican economy, you know, into a tailspin. And ironically, our economy is so dependent on the Mexican economy. And if you look south of Mexico, their economies are so dependent on the Mexican economy. You will create, you know, at least a regional economic downturn, which if we think we have a problem at the border now, you know, we're not. You know, I got asked this morning. The last time we had a real crisis at the border was in the early part of George W. Bush's presidency. And, and the anchor asked me, well, why did it, how did it get fixed? And the answer is there was an economic downturn here in the U.S. Right. You know, we had the early part of the 43's presidency where the economy was slow. And so people stopped coming because they didn't see opportunity here. Right. It's a crazy idea. And the only thing crazier than the idea is the most the Republicans can muster as far as opposition to this are a few tweets and demanding a meeting with the president. My guess at the end of the day is the president will find some sort of face-saving measure where the Mexican government does something that's the equivalent of drugs on the table. Like, we've solved the drug problem because we made one bust, and that leave us alone for a while. But it is a crazy way to run the government and... I don't know that there'll ever be any real cracks in the Republican ranks. But politicians are, at their core, self-involved and you know, self-preservation oriented. Taking the cost of a new car up four or $5,000 across the board just might get their attention, more to the point, just might get the voters' attention. So it's one of these things where they're with you until they're not with you. And this hasn't helped Trump. Absolutely. And then, Joe, the Trump family's excellent adventure, taxpayer-funded World Tour 2019, headed to the United Kingdom, where Donald Trump managed to start controversy even before he left. Now, outside of Fox News, Donald Trump doesn't do a lot of interviews. But, Joe, as you and I know all too well, before the president of the United States goes on a foreign trip, the White House press office works with the national security advisor and, and their team to set up press interviews with journalists from the country that the president will be visiting. And most of the time, those interviews are done with an interpreter because even though the journalists may speak English, their readers, listeners, and viewers usually don't. And if the president's remarks cause any problems, it plays out in that foreign language and it's much easier for the White House to manage, at least here in the U.S., and it's often blamed on either the translation or something else. But as it's often said, the British and Americans are two peoples who are separated by a common language. And President Trump caused a serious controversy, I guess as the British would say, by weighing in in the upcoming UK elections, by attacking London Mayor Sadiq Khan, 
end with his comments on the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle. Now let's take those one at a time and talk about what happened and why it matters. First, what's wrong with the president of the United States weighing into another country's parliamentary elections? Under Trump rules, there's nothing wrong with it. Under Trump rules, the Russians weighed in on our presidential election. So what could be wrong with him getting involved in an internal political decision? You remember, I think President Obama was widely criticized for making a comment about Brexit. And even that, while some of the criticism was legitimate, some of it wasn't because America has a direct interest in European stability, European prosperity is all good for the United States. But he was criticized for that. It's the drinking game now among Democrats. Every time someone says, imagine if Obama did that, take a shot. We as a party are very drunk right now. (laughs) It violates norms, and it's just dumb to weigh in because you might not back the winner. And it's really awkward if the person you back loses. And if your guy does win, it's not like it's helpful domestically for that politician. Trump is about 15% approval. You saw tens of thousands of people. You saw Trump on a royal commode. You saw fat baby Trump. We should import some of these protesters to the U.S. because they're very clever. So I don't know that it helps, in this case, Boris Johnson, that Trump is for him. Uh, By the way, who specifically didn't get his picture taken with Donald Trump during that trip. He avoided it like the plague. Yeah. It's, you know, it's just politically bad. It's diplomatically bad, but it's just par for the course for Trump. The other ones, they're both head scratchers, but they're not isolated, and they do tell us something about who Donald Trump is. And I wanted to ask you that, Joe, for a second, just because specifically on first the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, he he wrote an op-ed, he made comments, and my question for you on that was how much of the Trump attacks had to do with the substance of those comments and how much of it had to do with the fact that it was a mayor named Sadiq Khan? Well, it had a lot to do with the fact that he's, I mean, Sadiq Khan is a Muslim. He, by the way, is a very popular mayor of London. I've met him on several occasions. He's a very impressive guy. But, you know, Trump is a bigot. And Trump thinks that Muslims are bad. And it did have a lot to do with it. The second part of this is, though, and I've said this before in a number of contexts, the president of the United States has a unique position in the world. They are the designated adult in the room in whatever room they're in. This is what I mean by that. When you go in and some opposition leader or some political party takes a shot at you, you you elevate them by shooting back. You're the president of the United States. You do not have to take the bait at every turn. And in fact, it enhances your reputation that you can just sort of brush off your shoulder that the local mayor is not happy with you. But Trump clearly decided he wanted to reignite the war with Mayor Khan because this isn't his first time going after him. And he just made himself look incredibly small, even smaller than normal. His first official act as the plane was landing, was calling the mayor of London a stone-cold loser and a couple of other epitaphs. And again, it just it just reinforces, and this is the embarrassing part, that Americans are, are crude, they're rude, they're uninformed. Uh, remember, he didn't know what the NHS was, the healthcare system, which is at the center of the Brexit debate. I'm not sure he really understands what Brexit is. And not very smart loudmouths who don't know what they're talking about. And that's what the rest of the world sees when they see our leader. And that is deeply embarrassing. We also had the president 
in that one of those pre-interviews, and it continued through the trip, went after, as I said, the Duchess of Sussex, also known as Meghan Markle. She's also the first British royal of color. She's Prince Harry's wife. And he called her in an interview. He said, I didn't know she was nasty, uh, which is a word he'd used to describe Hillary Clinton in one of his debates and a word he used to describe women often. Talk a little bit about not just the substance of it, but the fact that he denied it. It was on tape and the British got to see Donald Trump in his full glory. It's not surprising that Donald Trump would go after a woman of color, a woman of a prominent woman as nasty. With people of color, he generally uses either nasty or low IQ. He chose nasty with Meghan Markle. But the really odd thing is I think the White House wanted people to know that he'd gone after her because let's remember how this all played out. A story came out that somebody leaked that the president had called Meghan Markle nasty. And the Trump campaign said, oh, that's not true. He never called her nasty. And they released the audio tape that had him saying, calling her nasty. One of two things happened. One is the person who released the tape didn't listen to it. That's highly unlikely. Or two, for whatever reason, the Trump campaign and Trump himself thought that it was to their benefit to start a fight and demean Meghan Markle, that somehow they would that would redound political benefit or credit to Trump. Just break that down for a second. You're about to go to London. One of the most popular people in the UK right now is Meghan Markle because she is a star. She is a little bit of America into that goes into royalty. And the president decides that she's she's a nasty woman. That, I think, tells you about how the president sees our country and how he thinks division helps him. They would not have released the tape if they didn't want the story confirmed. And I think it's another message here back at home that if you criticize the president, you're subhuman. And if you're not part of his tribe, the white tribe, then you're not worth anything. And again, just imagine all of the people in the UK who just celebrated the birth of this royal baby and the fact that we had kind of a new royal and a new way of doing things and have someone who was an American. And there was real, it seemed like, joy and uh, approval. Trump has to drop a Trump bomb into the middle of it. And, of course, made the story about himself. Speaking of Trump bombs, you mentioned he attacked Mayor Khan as he was landing. He also sent out a tweet. There were three other things of note that, that I'll list and we can go through. He sent out a tweet attacking CNN for their coverage. He claimed that the tens of thousands of protesters in the streets didn't exist. And then, most bizarre of all, his Bette Midler tweet. Let's start with CNN. Why was that different than the dozens and, and almost at this point maybe hundreds of other times he's attacked the cable news network in the past? Why was this one a little different? Well, this one, while on foreign soil, called for a boycott of one of America's biggest companies. You know, AT&T, one of the most significant companies in our history, in the business history of the United States, which owns Warner Media, which owns CNN. You had the president of the United States calling for a boycott of anyone using an AT&T phone. Legal experts immediately said that not only was this wrong, that's abuse of power. It's one thing to get anyone who wants something out of the White House to get them to stay at a Trump hotel. 
It's another thing to tell 300 million Americans you should switch your mobile phone from AT&T to one of their competitors. It takes your breath away, but an hour later he does something just as bizarre or wrong. There's so much that he gets away with because of the chaos he creates around himself. But that's one that we should stop and make sure that people understand the meaning of when the president of the United States starts interfering with people's businesses because he doesn't like the coverage, the coverage that CNN provides, you're not heading into, you are into very scary authoritarian territory. And while that did not get very much attention, it should. And I I would hope that when, whether it's House Oversight or House Judiciary gets their act together, that this will be a subject of any discussion about how to hold the president accountable. Joe, you mentioned authoritarianism. The British know a little bit about George Orwell. Uh, and Orwellian was a phrase I saw, heard, tossed around a lot during this trip. Donald Trump also said that the protests, of which, for the record, there were tens of thousands of protesters in the streets. Now, again, this we saw this with his, with his inauguration. We see this all the time. But in most cases, the world doesn't have firsthand knowledge of what the truth is. What makes this different when he's in another country and they are calling our president Orwellian for exactly the same stuff he did during during his inaugural. Well, I think part of it is that the rest of the world hasn't seen Trump the way we've seen him, whether it's the inaugural address where he became obsessed with size or his VFW speech later that talked about don't trust what you see or what you hear, trust what I say. The party is everything. Don't trust your eyes. Your eyes don't tell you what the truth is. The party tells you what the truth is. And I think it was startling for a foreign audience to see, to watch all day with their own eyes, tens of thousands of people in the streets, and then hearing the American leader say, oh, no, 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 they love me. There were there was no protesters. The other thing is it's very rare for an American president to travel abroad and not even out of, even if it's just out of curiosity, not draw throngs of people to come just to get a look at the American right. president. If you looked at the pictures of him traveling around London, there was nobody. There, nobody lined the streets. It to was see him. startling those pictures, it, and and that tells you something. It tells you that not only has the UK and I think the rest of the world lost respect for Donald Trump, they've lost respect for the United States. God help the person who replaces him in bringing back what was earned over 240-plus years because both allies and adversaries around the world know exactly how to game this president. Through flattery, through obsequiousness, you can get what you want, and you know you can get what you want because when you see, he considers himself to be the deal-maker and he's not smart enough to make a good deal. And every deal he's made has failed <laughs> on the on the— on the on the foreign side, on the domestic side, his signature issue, the tax cut, is now proven to be a disaster for him or a disaster for the country because it really has only benefited, you know, 0.1% of the country. And, you know, there's now thousands of stories about people who are disappointed because their taxes went up while, you know, billionaires' taxes went down. So it's... You know, I am going to keep coming back to this familiar theme, but it is it is embarrassing when he's at home. But, you know, we're at home and, you know, Americans have learned to deal with somehow. 
when he steps onto the foreign stage, it's a whole other level because, you know, it's like an entire, he goes and the entire country goes, wow, I, I can't believe it's this bad. Unlike President Bush, both President Bush as President Reagan, President Obama, President Clinton, Donald Trump was not invited to stay overnight at Buckingham Palace. And that night that he would have been there, at 1.30 in the morning, he decides that it's a good time to go after, of all people, Bette Midler. Now, Joe, I'm not even sure what to ask, but if you want to talk about that, maybe it explains why he wasn't invited because he would be walking the halls of Buckingham Palace, hate-tweeting Bette Midler. Well, is it more the same? Buckingham Palace said that there were major renovations, and I'm pretty sure that the renovations will be done on January 20th, 2021. Um, and may get extended to 2025. How many? Be- I think it's about 52 bedrooms. At I think there's. I think there's 74 okay. bedrooms. One of the most interesting parts of the London trip was the Queen's speech or the Queen's toast. The Queen is constitutionally mandated to be apolitical. As soon as she dips her toe in politics, she puts the monarchy at risk, and she is very good at it of just staying above politics. 63 years of practice. Yeah, and she's very good at it, but she proved also very good about looking apolitical but sending Donald Trump a message in that toast, which is America is a great country, but one of the reasons that America is great is America has always been able to work with Europe, with the UK, and it was a very uh, subtle and quiet rebuke of the America First philosophy And the best part about it was that Donald Trump had no idea he was being rebuked. He sat there and, you know, with a smile on his face, like, whoever thought I'd get to sit, wear a -a rent-a-tux and be at, you know, Buckingham Palace with my kids. And it's like the Clampets arriving at Beverly Hills. That dates dates me a little bit. We'll we'll get to that in a minute. And then, then, Joe, it was off to Ireland for, in addition to, of course, it's always great when you're president or the president's staff to visit Ireland, uh, given the close ties. But other than that, the only purpose I could see for the trip was to visit his golf course and put some more taxpayer money in his pocket because it was clear from the meeting with the, um, with the Irish prime minister that Donald Trump had not read his NSC briefing book. What happened when Donald Trump arrived in Ireland and why does it matter? Well, before he got there, there was a diplomatic row, as they call them, about where he'd be meeting with the, the Taoiseach, which is the Irish prime minister. And Trump and the NSC insisted he meet at his golf course. The Irish government, not surprisingly, said, we're not coming to your golf course. Like, <laughs> not going to be I, a prop in your infomercial. I, I, yeah, right. I am the leader of this country. If you want to come to my country, you'll come and meet. I think it was an airport hangar where they wanted well, to Well, I mean, it ended up being, I mean, Trump didn't give. I mean, uh, you know, any other president would have gladly gone to the government offices and shown respect for the Irish government and, and its leader, but not Trump. And they ended up finding a neutral site. And it was very clear that the, the single only reason that Trump was stopping in Ireland was to promote his golf course. And get to revenues because this entire staff, the, the Secret Service, I, I, I promise you that was the first time that the, the Dune Bay Golf Club was sold out. Yeah, well, the, I mean, Dune Bay is losing money which is well-known, it's no big secret. It was clear that the the only purpose of the trip was to promote the golf club. And, you know, at the end of the day, the Irish were good sports about it by allowing him to do that. But it's just another, you know, black mark on, on the presidency that he views 
an important part of his job to continue building the Trump brand and continue generating revenue. It's why we, the founding fathers put the emoluments clause in, which was they were, back then, they were very worried that presidents would use the power of the office, you know, for their own private gain. We really haven't seen that for 200 years. I mean, it was one of those things that was put in and everybody got the message, but not Trump. And, you know, there's, there's no dollar that he doesn't want all of. And American taxpayers paid a pretty heavy price for what was a promotional stop. Now, Joe, you mentioned the, the family going on this trip. Now, you and I did not work for presidents who had adult children. But I don't remember President Bush 41 taking Jeb or Neil or Doro on any of his trips. I, Ronald Reagan's four adult children did not accompany him to the 40th anniversary of D-Day back in 1984. And Nixon's two adult daughters didn't go to China. They were never part of any official events. Um, now, as a senior White House official, Joe, you were part of delegations. I was not. I was not senior enough. I went on trips. I worked with the press. I, I did my job as a staffer. But the official delegation – that dinner at Buckingham Palace is an incredibly important thing diplomatically. Then again, you, you've been honored to be part of those things. Explain how these trips work and why it's a problem for Eric and Donnie Jr. and, and Tiffany to be at Buckingham Palace and to be part of these official I'll, – I'll leave Ivanka because she's a pretend White House staffer. But talk about why that's important and why that's a problem. Well, you know, it's it's – I don't want to get into the weeds about, you know, presidential trips, but, you know, there, there, there's a lot of people who believe that for doing their job, it's important for them to be at this meeting or at that delegation dinner or whatever. Choices have to be made. So for every seat that's given to someone, a seat is taken away from someone else. There were five less people whose job is promoting the United States and the, the, the diplomacy of the United States who were denied access to that dinner. I think there was something more insidious going on, and um, there was a little controversy over a headline in the New York Times story that Katie Rogers and Maggie Haberman wrote, which was very unfair, I think, to the, the two writers of the story, because the story was a very good story. They didn't uh, write the headline. They, sure didn't, they didn't write the headline, but the headline said that Trump came to London to show that the Trump family is Americans' royalty. And, you know, as Prince Charles was there and as, you know, Camilla was there and, and all of that, Trump— Because it's a hereditary monarchy. <laughs> yeah. But it does go to the authoritarian instincts of uh, Trump and, and his supporters that the voters do not bestow power on him. His family and his namesake bestows power. I keep coming back to embarrassing, but it was an embarrassing moment, I think, for the country to have that family at that dinner— you know, and again, there's only three presidents who've been given the honor of a state dinner, a state visit and a state dinner in the UK. And it just cheapened it. The only promotion they did was for the Trump family business. You got there just a little insight into how Trump sees the presidency and a little chillingly how when he jokes about serving beyond his second term, it's not completely just a joke. I think that's absolutely right, Joe. You mentioned the promotion of the properties in Ireland the night before the ceremonies in France honoring the 75th anniversary of the Allied invasion of Normandy. We watched as two private citizens, Donnie Jr. and Eric, with their Secret Service detail in tow, go on a pub crawl, which doubled as an infomercial and advertisement for the Trump Dune Bay Golf Club. 
Now, Joe, as I watched that pathetic scene unfold, I couldn't stop thinking about what another presidential junior and his brother were doing 75 years ago to the day. Many people don't know this, but on June 6, 1944, 56-year-old Brigadier General Theodore Roosevelt Jr., son of the 26th President of the United States, landed with the 4th Infantry Division in the first wave at Utah Beach on D-Day. Now, Teddy Roosevelt Jr. needed to fight just to get the opportunity to land with his troops. He wasn't in great health. His commanding officer had twice denied his pleas to land with his men, and only after Teddy Roosevelt Jr. had submitted a formal written request did Major General Barton agree with great regret. He said later that he fully expected Roosevelt to be killed in action. Teddy Roosevelt Jr. was the oldest soldier in the entire D-Day invasion, the only general to land in the first wave, and the only father whose son also landed that day. Captain Quinton Roosevelt II was one of the first off of his landing craft in the first wave at Omaha Beach. And for anyone who's ever watched the first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan, that was only a glimpse of what it must have been like for them. Under heavy fire, with a pistol in one hand and a cane in the other, General Roosevelt quickly realized that he and his men had landed more than a mile off course. General Roosevelt took control of the situation and he famously said, well, we'll just have to begin the war from here. For 12 hours, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. stood on that beach under enemy fire as soldiers were killed all around him. He directed traffic and those in the following landing waves were shocked to see a general and even more shocked to realize that it was the son of a president standing calmly on that beach telling them where to go. One said that he was an inspiration that if General Roosevelt could do it, they could too. When four-star General Omar Bradley was later asked what the single greatest act of courage he had ever seen in combat was, he replied without hesitation, Ted Roosevelt at Utah Beach. General Teddy Roosevelt Jr. died two weeks later without knowing that day that he'd been awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for heroism and valor. Teddy Roosevelt Jr. is buried with his troops in the American Cemetery in Normandy. And his brother, Quentin Roosevelt I, he was already in France on D-Day in a military cemetery. He'd been killed 25 years earlier as a pilot during World War I. His remains were later moved to a grave next to his brother. He is the only World War I vet buried in that cemetery. Joe, imagine, if you will, what those two brave presidential sons would have thought of Nani Jr. and Eric on their taxpayer-funded pub crawl. I'm repeating myself now, but it, it is embarrassing. It does cheapen the presidency. It does cheapen the brand of the United States as the yeah, as Madeleine Albright used to call it, the indispensable nation. Donald Trump has made us dispensable. They've made us a commodity. It doesn't matter what the United States thinks as much anymore because you know Trump has squandered that mantle of leadership. There's a reason we commemorate things like D-Day because it's a reminder uh, about the sacrifice that freedom extracts from all of us, the tens of thousands of lives, the millions of lives, and if you look at all the history of world warfare. And uh, D-Day has a particular resonance, I think, because we still have some of those veterans alive, and they were front and center. Uh, they're in their uh, 90s now. Yeah, they're, they're, in, they're, they're, they're Some of them are still there. Some of them are still there, and we celebrate them. And I, I want to give Trump credit. He did celebrate them. They were there, and he did that effectively. And It was a well-written speech. And un, unusually for Trump, hit the right tone. 
and and he should be uh, congratulated for that. On another level, if you look at this whole trip, uh, the president couldn't get out of his own way. He spent as much time talking about domestic politics and creating problems back at home than demonstrating his leadership. He also delayed that ceremony for about a half hour. Explain why that happened and, and what you thought of that. Again, the speech was a good speech. But after watching the speech and reading some of the coverage, for people who know me, when I get really mad, I don't sound mad. But I'm I'm mad now. While everyone was waiting, while 90-plus-year-old war hero veterans were sitting in the sun waiting for the event, the president decided to take 15 minutes on sacred grounds and do an interview with Laura Ingram of Fox News. Now think about the symbolism of that. This is sacred ground. This is where the battle was fought. This is where the battle was joined on that beach, on Omaha Beach. And in large part, World War II started because there were forces in the world that thought one race was superior to other races. And they almost, they almost won. And if it wasn't for the resolve of America and our allies, they might have won and changed the course of history. So on this solemn day, 75 years later, what does Donald Trump decide to do? He decides to sit down to talk to someone who also believes there's a superior race, who's an apologist for white nationalists, who's a race-baiting, ratings-grabbing Fox News host, who, if you watch her every night, she brings on white nationalists. She talks about immigrants as subhumans and criminals and rapists the way the, the president does. And it was one of the most appalling things I, I think I've ever seen to give uh, a forum at that place, at that time, to sit down with someone who is a racist. And I don't care what they talked about. I'm not going to watch it. I don't, I don't care if anyone does watch it. It was a monumental error in judgment on Trump's part and a window, I think, into his soul. And the idea that there wasn't a single person in their orbit who said, hey, we're, we're basically endorsing by sitting down with Laura Ingham some of the tenets of what we fought against. You know, it's just beyond the pale and it's, it's not even embarrassment. It's, it, this goes to, it goes, I, 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 was, I was ashamed of our president. We'll be on to something else by the end of next week and no one will care. But when the history books are written, someone is, someone is going to look at that moment and say, this, this, this is Donald Trump showing his real character. And Joe, when we talk about remembrances and celebrations of our principles of freedom, of democracy, there's probably no more symbolic day than the 4th of July. And this week, we learned a little bit about President Trump's plans for this 4th of July, just in the context of our 75th anniversary of D-Day conversation and what you and I know about how presidents remember and celebrate the 4th of July. Talk about those plans and talk about why they seem at best problematic. I will repeat uh, the beginning of a tweet that I, I sent out over the week, which was, the president taking over the 4th of July, I'm pissed. I'm, I am just pissed off about this. The 4th of July is actually one of those remaining things that we all celebrate together as a country, and no president has ever tried to co-opt the 4th of July. 
And Donald Trump's going to turn it into a goddamn MAGA rally, which basically is saying to anyone who doesn't support him, any person of color, uh, a person, an immigrant, a person uh, who doesn't descend from whatever the right forefathers are, you're not welcome at this event. This is going to be a red hat gathering. If what he did on Omaha Beach was an 11 on my meter, this is a 15. I just can't, I can't articulate how angry this makes me to co-opt an American holiday that is nonpartisan, that is celebratory, and you know he will turn it in to one of these ugly, demeaning MAGA rallies. I'm torn on what we all should do about this. You know, one of the things we could do is those of us who oppose him could not show up, but there'll be a crowd there of MAGA loving Donald Trump and Hill on Fourth of July. Well, there's a lot of families in this country, Joe, as you and I know, who've lived, both lived in Washington, worked at the White House during these things. There's a lot of families who plan a whole Washington trip, and I'm sure these trips have been planned long before this announcement of how Donald Trump is going to magify the Fourth of July, and it, and it seems like an affront to them. It certainly is. So, I mean, I I have I have a couple ideas on this, and I think. 50,000, 100,000, 200,000 people showing up in John McCain hats would work and would send a message to the president. I think about what would get his attention. You know, what, and this is a, a silly idea, but it's something I'm going to do and I hope other people to do too, which is Trump derives um, his sense of self worth largely by external things. And one of them is I've got 60 million people who follow me on Twitter and they love me. Well, of that 60 million people, a bunch of them are bots. They're not human beings. And a bunch of them are people who hate Donald Trump. And by the way, that's also still almost only half as many people as follow Barack Obama. But I digress. Yeah. Um, and he doesn't, view, he doesn't view it that way. There are a lot of people who are part of the resistance or people like me who follow him because we need to keep up on with what our president is doing. And it's it's how this White House communicates. And I think the way to get his attention is to remind him that all those people who think he thinks love him don't love him. And, you know, take the 4th of July and unfollow him. And if you have to, like me, I'll follow him again the next day because I need to. I need to keep up with what ridiculous things are coming out of his mouth. I mean, if I hadn't followed him, you know, at one thirty in the morning, I wouldn't have known Bette Midler was enemy number one. You know, I mean, <laughs> and that's something you need to know. And I needed to know it at one thirty in the morning. And I'm sure there's people out there that are way more clever than me. But I think as a country, we've got to figure out a way to send a message to Trump. It may be impeachment. It may not be impeachment. It may be at the ballot box. It may not be. But particularly on the 4th of July, that his brand of patriotism and his brand of America first is not what this country was built on. In fact, it's just the opposite of what this country was built on. We'll put it out to our listeners to come up with some better ideas than my lame ones. But I'm ordering my John McCain mask, and, you know, I'll be there. So, Joe, we will see if those Fourth of July plans come to pass. I have a suspicion that they may be scaled back given the reaction. I don't know about that. Here's the thing about fake news. Trump really believes it's fake news. Trump believes that the crowds in London loved him. That's probably Trump right. believes yeah. that there were no real protesters. And it is part of his, I'm not going to get into the psychological 
profile because I'm not qualified to do it. And when I tried to do it with Tony Schwartz, I made an ass of myself. So, but he does believe this, and he and he says it with conviction. And that should be scary that the president of the United States has that much trouble grasping reality. Well, Joe, I think that's all we have time for this week. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.